when somebody's kind of been around the block to a couple different people, nothing's really done, nothing's really helped. And, and I do my thorough interview and exam of them. And even if I haven't cured them, if I have improved their quality of life by 20 to 30%, somebody who's pretty miserable to begin with, that's substantial. I mean, they're, they're, they're very thankful. And, and so in, in my practice, that's the thing that I find the most rewarding. I'm attorney Dave Craig, managing partner and one of the founders of the law firm of Craig, Kelly & Follows. I've represented people who have been seriously injured or who have had a family member killed in a semi or other big truck wreck for over 30 years. Following the wreck, their lives are chaos. Often they don't even know enough about the process to ask the right questions. It is my goal to empower you by providing you with the information you need to protect yourself and your family. In each and every episode, I will interview top experts and professionals that are involved in truck wreck cases. This is After the Crash. Today, we are interviewing Dr. Edward Negovetich, uh, Jr. Uh, Dr. Negovetich is a uh, physiatrist, and uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to have him on our podcast. He's a ex- um, a gifted attorney or a gifted doctor. Uh, that's a nightmare to be an attorney, right? <laughs> gifted doctor uh, who um, not only works with uh, a lot of clients, a lot of type of people who have been involved in wrecks because they will go to a physical medicine rehabilitation doctor. Um, and so we're going to talk a little bit about that. He also does forensic work uh, where he actually testifies or looks at um, things from a medical legal standpoint. Uh, and we're going to talk about that as well. And he also does uh, future life care plans. Um, not that uh, not all doctors do. And we'll talk about what that means and what that is. So, uh, so uh, Dr. Negovich, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me, Dave. Pleasure to be here. So let's start off with just a little bit about your background. Tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you went to medical school, where you went to college, and uh, exactly what your specialty is. Sure. I, I grew up in the northwest corner of Indiana. I went to Wabash College in Crawfordsville, Indiana, as an undergrad, graduated with um, uh, my BA in chemistry, and then enrolled in medical school at the Indiana University School of Medicine in uh, Indianapolis, graduated from there four four years later, and then did my internship or transitional year at the Marshfield Clinic in Marshfield, Wisconsin, and then returned to Indianapolis uh, to IU to do my physical medicine and rehabilitation residency. And can you explain to the folks, so, I mean, this podcast is designed for everyday, ordinary folks that uh, may not know a lot about the legal process or the medical process. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about what physical medicine rehabilitation is? Sure. It's it's a small medical subspecialty. It, it is frequently abbreviated PM and R because it's obviously a, a mouthful to say physical medicine and rehabilitation every time you reference the field. The field also is uh, sometimes referred to as physiatry, not to be confused with psychiatry. Uh, And we are thus sometimes referred to as physiatrists, um, which there's some debate how you pronounce it. Some people say physiatrists, but that doesn't roll off the tongue as well for me. So I still say physiatrist. Anyhow, uh, it's a non-surgical specialty. It uh, takes a somewhat of a holistic approach to a patient in uh, examining assorted bone, muscle, joint, nerve, tendon conditions, uh, acute and chronic illnesses. Uh, as During our training, we do quite a bit of 
following people with chronic diseases, chronic illnesses, and managing those conditions. So we also do things such as a nerve nerve test called an EMG, a nerve conduction study, which is a a test to diagnose nerve or muscle diseases. Also within the scope of physical medicine and rehabilitation is the area of brain injury as well as spinal cord injury. In fact, we are frequently the docs that staff the inpatient rehab units where someone is rehabbing after a brain injury or a spinal cord injury. I mean, it's kind of, I mean, I kind of look at it as kind of a blend um, between like orthopedics and neurology, um, you know, in, in, in a way you work with both, right? I completely agree. In fact, that's oftentimes how I explain it, which actually is part of the reason I ended up in the field I ended up in. But yes, I believe it's a it's a non-surgical, you know, the old Venn diagrams where you have intersecting circles uh, of orthopedics, neurology and, and sports medicine. Absolutely. Um, in fact, I, I went to medical schools thinking I wanted to do sports medicine and there's no there's not a sports medicine residency. Um, sports medicine is, is if you don't want to be a surgeon is a um, it's a fellowship after you complete, say, internal medicine or family practice, something of that nature. And when I did my rotation in, in family practice, I, I thought there was no way I could um, <laughs> that I could survive a family practice residency just because I, I didn't like a lot of the other day to day associated with that. Um, so then I started thinking about other things. I really liked neurology, but by the same token, didn't really want to deal with, um, you know, some of the conditions they dealt with on a daily basis. Uh, and liked some of the procedural aspect, meaning injections and, and things of that nature. And uh, I actually happened to stumble onto, I didn't, I typically always bring my lunch or brought my lunch to school. And I stumbled upon a luncheon by the Indiana Department of Physical Medicine Rehabilitation. So I went to the meeting uh, to get a free lunch <laughs> and was kind of interested by the stuff they presented and the things they do. And I thought, wow, this is kind of an interesting combination of some of the things that interest me. So I did a rotation, liked it, did a, an elective, and then did a second elective, um, still liked it and thought, you know what, this this works for me. And, and you're right, it is an extremely diverse field. And I would say there's probably a hundred different, if you queried a hundred different physiatrists, as far as their day to day and things they saw, things they didn't see, it would probably be very different, even though we all have you know, similar training from a residency perspective, obviously I have to pass a board exam, but there is a great deal of variety and in my specialty, which, which I like. I also like the idea of I'm doing different stuff. It's not every person I go in and see every single day, it's this or that. So yeah, I, 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 that appealed to me. And I see a lot of, um, and a lot of clients ask me, because they don't know the difference. They're like, you know, they're having pain as a result of a wreck, a traumatic wreck. Uh, they're struggling. Um, and uh, and there may not be anything surgical. Um, and so, you know, they go to, an, they want to know, do I go to orthopedic surgeon? Do I go to neurology? I mean, they don't know where to go. And, and a lot of orthopedic surgeons, that, or they'll go to an orthopedic surgeon or a neurologist, and they'll be referred to somebody like you in your profession, your area of expertise, because they're not really geared to get them better or to work with them or to rehab them. Um, you know, if, if it's not a surgery, then what are they going to do? Um, at least a lot of these bigger clinics. And they kind of specialize on uh, like orthopedic surgeons on bone injuries, bone fractures and disc surgeries. Uh, but um, they'll refer to people like you because you're the ones, you're the pro, kind of the area 
that helps rehab and helps people live with the pain and discomfort that can't be fixed. Yeah, absolutely. That's a conversation I have with many of my patients is, hey, look, I'm going to present you a variety of treatment options, none of which are curative, all of which are palliative. I can't reinflate this disc. I can't eliminate this arthritis. I can't straighten your spine. But some combination of these things that I, I can offer you may help. And, and then we, you know, uh, tackle as far as what that particular person's personal preferences are, whether it be medicine shots, other physical medicine interventions, what have you. And then we develop a plan as how, how we're going to move forward. And you're absolutely right. As far as orthopedic surgeons or neurosurgeons, I mean, if you think about it, what drew them to those fields was they liked operating. They liked doing surgery. Um, that's what they want to do. They do not want to be in clinic listening to a litany of somebody's aches and pains uh, or cognitive issues or whatever, because they barely give you two or three minutes of FaceTime. And that's not a criticism. I feel like I, I love orthopedic surgeons. And if I felt I wanted to do surgery, that definitely would have been been the field I would have gone in. But um, but, you know, they're, they want to operate. And so they quickly look at a scan or an X-ray and say, yeah, you know, I can fix you or I can't fix you. Uh, so long if it's non-surgical. And really one of the things they, it's like the opening line of any orthopedic book is 90% of orthopedic surgery, orthopedic um, issues are non-surgical. So the vast majority of people with orthopedic conditions aren't surgical and the surgeons by their education and training, they're not, they're not interested in, they don't desire to follow somebody long-term who doesn't need surgery. So you're absolutely right. They will frequently send somebody in, in, in a physiatrist's direction. And in fact, some of the large orthopedic and large neurosurgical groups uh, will typically employ uh, one or two or several physiatrists under their umbrella um, who frequently even evaluate people first line. And so that that person that walks in the door is maximizes all their conservative care so that the patient is, quote unquote, teed up uh, for the surgeon. Uh, and then the surgeon say, yeah, look, uh, this is slam dunk. We should be able to do this. We should be able to get it improved because a lot of times insurances will have different uh, steps that must be done, must be taken and documented accordingly in order to approve it and uh, a procedure. So that is not uncommon. The, the other thing that I, I, I think is a real plus to seeing a physiatrist as opposed to an orthopedic surgeon, and I, I see this all the time in my, in my clinical practice as well as my forensic practice, is when somebody presents to an orthopedic surgeon and they have right shoulder, left elbow, right knee, and left ankle pain, they say, what's the one thing you're here for today? Let's talk about that one thing. We'll focus on that. And, and, and again, because they're not going to spend half hour and write an elaborate report detailing everything about every one of their injuries. That's not exactly in their wheelhouse. Uh, whereas in physiatry, it is. And also on the same lines, if you go see a shoulder surgeon, he's only interested in about the shoulder. And he's going to send you the neck surgeon if they think it's coming from the neck. Next, you're going to say, well, there's no surgery here, so go see this other guy. Um, so oftentimes, especially in the bigger groups, they're, they're, they are very subspecialized uh, where this guy takes care of this, this guy takes care of that. So you're really piecemealing together your care as opposed to having perhaps a, a central quarterback, if you will, uh, and you know, referring just to the appropriate surgeon as necessary once conservative care has been maximized. So anyway, I know that was a, a long-winded 
elaboration, but I think all of that's really relevant, particularly when you deal with people who, who have been in injuries because they frequently have multiple aches and pains and several areas involved. And in the acute period, when they, if it's somebody who, God forbid, had to be transported by ambulance to hospital for a workup, they're just interested in the ER and in, in, in what, what are potentially life altering uh, complications or injuries. And, and they just want to rule out the really bad stuff. And then they just want you to get you home and follow up with whoever they send you to follow up with. So um, anyway, I, I, that's where I think that our, my field is, is very, very beneficial. And we see that. I mean, so a client comes in after a horrific wreck. And so they, you know, nor, initially they may have life-threatening injuries, but then the life-threatening injuries pass and now they have chronic pain. And so example, you, you mentioned the shoulder, but we'll see cases where there's a shoulder injury, a neck injury, a back injury, and I mean, maybe even an arm, like a carpal tunnel type thing. And so it's complicated as to what is it that is causing the pain. Um, you go to the shoulder surgeon, and the shoulder surgeon, folks, like you said, focuses on the shoulder. The uh, A neurosurgeon or an orthopedic surgeon may look at the neck and say, okay, do we have a de- neck? And they, they maybe look at the carpal tunnel. Um, but it's, I mean, it's tricky. Um, and so a lot of times what they'll do is they'll try, well, let's have conservative treatment and see where we where we end up. Let's try some conservative treatment. Let's work with a physiatrist. Uh, let's work with somebody. Let's try to nail down and get more specifics. Because like you said, they don't really want to spend every week with them coming in and talking to them. Uh, they want to know what the end product is. And I assume you work with people like that, trying to focus and trying to figure out what is it that's causing the issue. And then if you need to refer them out to a surgeon, I assume you do that. Absolutely. I, I think you hit the nail on the head with all of that. I, the other that issue that I will encounter from time to time that I think is closely related to what you just said is, say somebody does have a neck problem that needs surgery and somebody has a shoulder problem that needs surgery. That's two different surgeons that do those. And it's almost like they're playing a game of chicken because no surgeon wants to operate on somebody who they know postoperatively is still going to have problems and aren't going to be 100% happy. Uh, so they all, well, I think you should get the shoulder fixed first before we do the neck, or I think you should get the neck fixed first before we do the shoulder. And so we encounter that uh, very frequently in, in, in regular practice as well as, as in, in the medical legal realm, personal injury type realm. And so if you could, like you said, really kind of narrow it down, say with some conservative treatment, the neck gets better. And it's obviously then primarily a shoulder problem that's limiting their function or causing their pain. Uh, then that can be fixed. And the orthopedic surgeon, in my opinion, frequently, they, they appreciate that. They, they, they like to not have confounding variables that, that would adversely impact their, out, their surgical outcome for what they're going to fix. And likewise, we see a lot of, uh, especially since I do, our practice has a heavy emphasis on on commercial motor vehicles, semi-tractor trailers, large you know motor vehicles, large trucks. And um, the reality is that you know when those when you know forty tons hits a car, there can be significant damage. And we see a lot of mild traumatic brain injuries uh, from that type of trauma, and uh, and oftentimes also in the neck uh, injuries. And so you'll see somebody who has headaches. Um, has severe headaches and and, the, and nobody knows right in the beginning is it the from the traumatic brain injury uh is it from the neck injury um and so um and and I know as in your practice and physiatry that 
You also will help people with uh, mild traumatic brain injuries. Uh, again, you're not a surgeon, uh, but a mild traumatic brain injury, you don't need surgery. You're not going to have surgery, right. uh, but, you, but you could have long-term in, uh, impacts and effects. So talk a little bit about like what you offer, what, what kind of services do you guys provide for people like that? Well, I think the first thing is to properly evaluate the person. And you're right with headaches in particular, uh, sorting out what is, is the cause primarily a, a intracranial problem is the cause. Is it cervicogenic? Does the neck condition cause the headaches? And a lot of that can be supplemented by identifying where does the headache occur? Is it the back of the head, which I think is usually going to be more likely have a significant cervicogenic component, though certainly frontal headaches, which is a you know, forehead area can be referred as well. Uh, is it unilateral? Is it one-sided? Is it two-sided? Uh, does it alternate, you know, characteristics of their condition and then assessing for uh, other, other issues that they may notice is their emotional uh, lability. Are they more weepy, whiny? Are they more irritable? How's their mood? How's their anxiety? Do bright lights bother them? Do loud noises bother them? Are they dizzy, nauseated? Can they look at a screen and, and, and work on a screen without getting a headache? So you evaluate all of those circumstances and try to then ascertain what is their, their problem. And if there appears to be uh, you know, memory or focus or concentration or speech, word finding difficulties, you, you, you investigate that. And with most, with many mild brain injuries, Things should move slowly in the right direction with time. And so initially, I don't think that I am overly aggressive in, in either working up or more aggressively treating somebody in the acute phases. And, and I do a lot of uh, athletic related, sports related concussions. I'm a sports medicine director for my local hospital. And essentially what that means is I manage all the concussions in our area. So the trainers if I'm not at the game, the trainers send me a text, say, hey, so-and-so's going to be calling you tomorrow morning. Can you work him or her in? So I see a lot of these acutely as well as the ones that happened a while ago. But in the acute phases, it's a lot of education. It's relative rest. It is avoid things that really make you feel awful. Uh, it's understanding that no two brain injuries, no two concussions are the same. Everybody's going to heal them at different rates. There's a variety of prognostic factors that could uh, you know, impact your recovery rate compared to your peers. There are uh, things that can be done for the, the dizziness or what's called vestibular dysfunction. I feel that if there is a vestibular component to the symptoms, that typically someone will get better much more quickly if that is addressed. So I will... Uh, I will very acutely send people to begin vestibular therapy uh, for the vestibular dysfunction, because I, I believe when there's vestibular dysfunction, that also ramps up the headaches, that ramps up their general feeling of malaise, feeling crummy. And so I will be aggressive with that. In the acute phase, uh, I don't do much by way of prescription medicines. There are some studies, some European studies suggesting fish oil may be beneficial and it's not going to hurt you. So I talk about that. More recently, there was a study about melatonin being beneficial in, in the setting of any brain injury, even if they don't complain of having sleep problems. Melatonin is a naturally occurring hormone that we secrete through a gland at the base of our brain called the pituitary gland. Anyway, it's, it's always been well known that people who have had brain injuries uh, have issues with their sleep-wake cycle. 
excessive drowsiness or not sleeping restfully, not being able to fall asleep or stay asleep, things like that. So anyway, I will frequently discuss supplementing with melatonin and, and probably for acute management, the most recent thing that is is really out there is cardiovascular activity to tolerance that actually, if you're able to do something, whether it's a brisk walk, whether it's a stationary bike, uh, it, whatever you're able to tolerate that doesn't promote or, or, or uh, aggravate any symptoms associated with your condition, you should keep doing it because that increases blood flow to your brain, helps it heal and can shorten the duration of symptoms. So there's a lot of education in the acute phase going through all of those. And then as we follow them, you know, if things become six weeks, eight weeks, uh, then we'll talk about, okay, let's investigate uh, with an MRI for any structural damage. Everybody gets a CAT scan if they go to the hospital, if they've had trauma and complaint of head issues. And that's basically to rule out, like I referred to, to before, a life-threatening condition. Do they have a major brain bleed? Uh, and the vast majority of, of the time, those are negative for bleeds, but head CTs don't show you um, brain bruising, uh, doesn't, won't necessarily show you, especially in the acute phase, uh, brain scarring or anything like that, that we might see on an MRI. So I would get structural imaging. And if there's still cognitive concerns, we would certainly do a speech and cognitive therapy evaluation and see if that is something that they can do to get better. And then as time moves into more of that four, five, maybe even six months, if there are still symptoms, I would frequently refer for a full neuropsychological test. And at that time, or maybe even a little before, consider different medications that can be used to enhance cognition. If headaches are still a major problem, then we can talk about medicines to, to uh prophylax against headaches, as well as maybe some abortive headache medicines. But I don't try to do much of the prescription medicines at all for four months after the initial insult. And, you know, I think that, um, you know, what's crazy is that in my 35 years of practice um, and, and over my lifetime, the amount of information that we know about brain injuries, mild traumatic brain injuries or severe brain injuries or mild, um, you know, uh, or moderate, um, is, 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 it's like night and day. I mean, you know, and you look back and you say, okay. And, and I just recently had somebody pull up all the studies that have been done on brain injuries and following people who have had brain injuries. And so much has been done here in the last 10 years or so. Um, and, and a lot because of, of the wars. Um, unfortunately, we have military people coming back. The government has put a lot of money in studying because we're having a lot of veterans come back with um, post-traumatic stress, but also traumatic, mild traumatic brain injuries and uh, post-concussive symptoms. And so they're studying that. And then obviously we have the athletes, um, you know, the professional football players. And and we now know, they got, boy, there's stuff that is happening in the brain that when we do an autopsy, we see that we didn't even see with, you know, regardless of what type of scans we were using. Yeah. Um, and so we learned so much more today than what we did. I'm when I played sports, they you had a concussion and they put you right back in. I mean, they yes, your bell rung, shake it off. Yeah, they did. I mean, it was no big deal. When right. my kids played sports, it was a big deal. You had to have, you know, you had to be taken out. They had to have someone like you look at them and take them out, and they couldn't play again, no matter how bad. I mean, you know, when you're young, you want to play. Um, and so, but we had we now know that that's not a good idea. 
Um, and I think the amount of knowledge we have is just, it's amazing how much more we know today uh, than what we used to know. I think you're 100% correct. And, and even with the abundant uh, knowledge that we have now that we didn't have 10 years ago, I still think it's generally just the tip of the iceberg. There's, I come across studies from time to time. They're looking at doing this blood test or that blood test acutely to determine, you know, confirm the presence or absence of, of uh, brain involvement. And there, you mentioned the scans and for a concussion, which would be termed a, a mild uh, brain injury. By definition, a concussion has a normal MRI. If you have an abnormal MRI, it's something else. That doesn't mean that they don't have problems. It just means there's no permanent structural uh, uh, change that that is that is causing their symptoms. They do do what's called functional MRIs that mostly you only see in some of the literature and studies where they they will you know, do these functional MRIs of uh, a collegiate football player uh, during season. Uh, you know, three months after the season wraps up and follow that over time. Uh, they do studies where they have sensors inside the helmet and they video record all of the practices and they tabulate what type of forces uh, did and didn't result in somebody complaining of symptoms. So you're right. I mean, there's still a ton of research ongoing. And I, I wouldn't be surprised 10 years from now if treatment would be much different than what it is now. It's constantly evolving. Um, so talk to, let's talk a little bit about your clinical practice. So tell folks, you know, like on a day-to-day -day basis, like what do you do? Where does your client, where does your patients come from? Sure. So I, I practice in a, a rural area. So one of the things I like about my practice is it is pretty diverse. I see a little bit of everything within my field. And not just exclusively one thing, which sometimes you get pigeonholed into if you're part of a bigger group, particularly in the city. But anyhow, I, I see people who have you know, weekend warrior injuries, work comp injuries, people who have gotten into some type of car accident or recreational accident at home. I see people with uh, more chronic conditions like diabetic neuropathy who have pain or numbness or weakness in their feet as a result of that. I see a great deal of of degenerative conditions of the spine, of the hips, the knees, the shoulders. I see uh, other nerve phenomenons. Um, I mean, unfortunately, I've diagnosed ALS a couple times in my career, which is for fun. Uh, I do the nerve tests that I talked about, and I do a variety of injections, both in the office, joint injections, trigger injections, bursa injections, as well as some of those in the spine that require fluoroscopic, which is like x-ray guidance uh, to deliver the medicine in the intended location. And uh, where, did, where do your patients um, typically come from? I mean, like, they, are they referrals or are they just, right. I, mean, I, I go to a family doctor, and I just, you know, um, but you're not like that. <laughs> so, um, no, you're right. So, <laughs> And, and part of this is just sort of the, the society we live in and insurance and, and a whole boatload of stuff. Most of my patients are referred usually by primary care or by orthopedics or by neurosurgery. Those are probably my, my largest referral sources. Obviously, work comp comes more from you know, the case manager in, in, in that condition or in that situation. That's where most of my, my patients come from. I do. I do allow self-referrals, particularly if they, they have insurance. 
one of the the one of the the issues sometimes in my field is a lot of docs in my field refer to themselves as pain docs and I really try to avoid that moniker. I try to avoid that label just because of not so much now as it was maybe eight to 10 years ago, but frequently that just means go here to get narcotics. And while I do that, while I do chronic medication management for several folks, uh, it's not the emphasis of my practice. And so really limiting the self-referrals is is done primarily out of screening somebody so that that's not all that person's interested and that's what they expect they're going to get. If we have some notes from, you know, primary care or orthopedics, usually those will have, you know, references to whether they've been getting pain medicines or haven't been getting pain medicines, if they've passed or failed drug tests and that sort of thing. But uh, most of them are referred from those specialties. I know from, from my standpoint, you know, I've been doing the same work for a long time. And I was just telling somebody that I was that was interviewing with me today that, um, you know, I have clients uh, that come to me um, and, you know, I try to get them compensated. But I really want to make a difference in their lives. I want to improve the quality of their life. And it's not just money. Um, And I have families who bring their kids, their adult kids to me. Um, and I have one in particular who had a severe brain injury that comes in just to meet me periodically, just to talk to me uh, and, and to get a hug, uh, literally just to get a hug. And his family says if they don't do that, he really deteriorates uh, because he looks at me kind of as a father figure. And, you know, that makes me just as happy as if I go get a certain amount of money for somebody, because I do this because I want to make a difference in their lives. I would assume that there's some, as far as your clinical practice, why, why are you doing what you're doing? Why do you, why do you like it? I, I, I do like it. And I think that probably the most rewarding scenario that I see is when somebody who's been told by, you know, the orthopedic surgeon, nah, I can't fix you. You don't have surgery. Uh, and, you know, the primary care doc doesn't really know what to do with them. And, and we evaluate them and say, hey, listen, I think if we do this, this and this, I think life might be better than, than what it is now. And you, you're absolutely right. Like I said before, even if I haven't cured them, if I have improved their quality of life by 20 to 30 percent, somebody who's pretty miserable to begin with, that's substantial. I mean, they're, they're, they're very thankful. And, and so in, in my practice, that's the thing that I find the most rewarding. When somebody's kind of been around the block to a couple different people, nothing's really done, nothing's really helped. And, and I do my thorough interview and exam of them and I review their pictures. I say, you know what? I think maybe this might be causing your problem or I think this is contributing more than this has been given, given credit to. And, um, and when they get somewhat better, that's, I think that's the most rewarding thing. That's what I, I think I enjoy the most about my job. Well, I know because uh, I've certainly had uh, uh, clients that who um, happen to be patients of yours, and I know that um, they they really appreciate the fact that you work on trying to get them better and you try to improve their quality of their life, and they speak very highly of you, and I I appreciate that. Um, I appreciate and, that as well. Um, so, but then all of a sudden you decide to do forensic work, uh, and for the listener, forensic work means that they um, have looked at cases from a legal standpoint. So. A lot of people don't understand, but when someone's injured in a wreck, uh, they can't just go into a courtroom and say, um, I, uh, I I tore my rotator cuff um, and I had to have these surgery and I had all these bills and it's all related to the car crash. That is not admissible. 
because they're not doctors. They are not qualified to say whether someone was caused by a trauma, a car crash or not. The law requires us to prove that it's more, more likely than not, more probably true than not true, that an injury was caused by the trauma, the, the, the car crash or whatever the trauma happens to be. And so we have to rely upon doctors um, to, to testify and to give us opinions uh, and to make and help us guide us through the process that this is related, this is not related. And we, as the plaintiff, the person who's injured, attorney, we have the burden of proof. So we have to put a doctor on. The, the insurance companies, the defense lawyers, they can put a doctor on if they want to, but they don't have to. Uh, and, and so we obviously put on the plaintiff, the injured parties, put on more doctors than the defense does because they don't have to. Um, and so so forensic work is 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 evaluating uh, to determine whether or not an injury was caused by trauma or not and, and long-term effects and what are the symptoms. And you have to work with lawyers to do that. And I know I know most doctors don't want to work with us. <laughs> so why did you decide to do forensic work? Uh, part of it was because you're right. There's a demand for this type of thing. And a lot of docs are really kind of hesitant to it. And, and, you know, the nature of the types of people that I see before I was even doing any forensic work as a treating doctor, I'd frequently get um, a letter from, from someone's attorney that says, Hey, uh, you know, so-and-so was injured on such and such date. We know you treated them from here to there. Can you, you know, draft a, a narrative explanation of what their injury was? Uh, you know, any treatment that might've been related to these injuries. And if you think anything else is going to need to be done. And, and this is as a treating physician. So I was, I was doing a fair number of those and didn't really know what an independent medical exam was at that time and came across it mentioned on some blog or something that I read that coincided with happened to be at a, I was at a medical conference where I ran into another physician who was doing many of the IMEs that I, I knew and kind of started picking his brain, talking to him about how you do it and do you like it? And, you know, what are the, the pros and cons? Um, and he said he had some overflow work. If I wanted to kind of dip my toes in the water and see what it, uh, it was like I, I was welcome to join him. So I think initially I went up to his place. I think it was one Friday a month uh, for a while, observed and talked about the cases, wasn't drafting any of my own reports or anything, wasn't signing off on anything, but got more of a feel for for what all went into it and and liked it and thought it was interesting. I've always enjoyed puzzles and uh, part of actually what drew me to, to medicine in general was sort of the diagnosis, figuring out what the problem is. And uh, so this kind of work really appealed to me. And, you know, you see it as a treating doctor, you see it on both ends where you think people are really milking it. And, you know, they want you to fill this paperwork and you don't fill it out favorably for them because because, you, you know, they're milking it. Uh, and, and then at the same time, you have treating patients who have you say applied for social security disability and got denied. And I'm thinking, why, why on earth did they get denied this? If there's anybody who is more legitimate, show me the person. So, so anyway, I, I also enjoyed in the forensic realm, sort of being able to sort through the BS and, and at least to the best of my ability, do the best you can and saying, Hey, listen, this related, this 
uh-uh, sorry, uh, you know, this, this isn't part of it. It's not fair for insurance staff to pay for this if it's not related. Uh, but by the same token, if, if it is something that they should be paying for because they're at fault, I think, uh, you know, stating such is, is helpful. And I think sometimes people think that, um, again, um, that, you know, um, that just because you're hired by a lawyer, that you're a hired gun. That that means just because a lawyer hires you or picks you, um, that you're going to give testimony or opinions that are favorable, you know, to that side. Um, is that true? No, and in fact, you know, that physician that I that sort of mentored me in this direction, uh, that was one of the things he told me very very early on, and uh, I have taken it to heart, and I uh, fervently, uh, you know. It doesn't matter. We're, we're, we're reimbursed for our time. We're not reimbursed for our opinion. So if you take a bunch of time and say I spend four hours reviewing some records and an hour interviewing somebody and and then sit down and think about it and and I call you or somebody else and say, hey, listen, I know so and so thinks this, this and this, but I have real problems saying because when I review this record, I see that this was worked on or this was done. I I, I don't think this is a very good case. And, and from my perspective. The feedback I get is that uh, most attorneys appreciate that because you don't want to chase a losing case. You don't want to chase something, spend a bunch of time in, in prep and depots and time and money on, on those things in trial. If 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 you really don't uh, have a very strong conviction that 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 your client's injuries are 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 causally related and, and need to be compensated, so I think that that's helpful. And I've done, I mean, I've done many numerous. I am easing even recently uh, life care plans where I was, you know, initially evaluated the records and examined and then came back and had a conversation with the attorney and said, listen, I don't I don't think that this is exactly what you thought it was going to be. And um, they said, OK, thanks. You know, that's that's it. Uh, sometimes people want it in in print, I think, to share with their client. <laughs> sometimes people don't want anything in print. And say, OK, just, uh, you know. Talk to you next time. Well, I think that, and I think that's important for people to understand, is that, you know, I don't care how good a lawyer you are, we're not doctors, we're not medical doctors, I don't have a medical degree. And so we hire people like you, at least from our firm, for you to help guide us, to tell us. I mean, our client comes in, sometimes it's purely coincidental. They have a wreck, they had no problems before, suddenly they have all these problems that continue to go, and for six months later, now they have some different problems, but they seem like, they, in their mind, they're all related. A year from now, they're still having issues, but maybe there's some new ones. They all think they're all related because they didn't have that before this car crash. Right. And so, and I, as a lawyer, we don't know what it is. And the best way to lose a case is to overreach. The best way to lose a case is to claim something that's not related. I mean, jurors are are smart people. They're average folks in, in each county where a wreck happens and they go in there and they're not idiots and they listen to the facts. And they're just like you and me. We sit there and you listen and you make a decision. And if you're lying or you're stretching or you're just trying to lump something in, then that's a good way to lose a case. And I don't know any good lawyer who's who is honest and who who actually takes these cases to trial who would ever ask somebody to say something that's not true. Um, that's the best way to lose. And it's also, I mean, in, in your business. If the, the the doctor, there are doctors out there who will do that, who will give an opinion that is consistent with what the lawyer wants. Uh, the problem is that eventually they're out of business. 
because eventually it catches up with them because you can't be dishonest and continue to do the same reports day in and day out, no matter what, uh, without even seeing patients, without even reviewing all the records and just cookie cuttering reports and expect that that lawyers aren't going to catch you at it. Right. So I think that it's uh, naive for people to think that just because someone hires them, I know we've used you, we use other doctors, we use doctors from all over. Um, and there's been occasions where you've told us that, hey, look, you know, this is not, this symptom is not caused by the trauma. And we, I mean, I appreciate that. And I would rather know that on the front end. And I hope I most are like that. <laughs> <laughs> I think most of the, the, the work that, the work that is referred my direction, um, attorneys are like-minded in that regard. And I assume the forensic work is a small percentage of overall what you do. I mean, you're a clinical doctor, you practice medicine day in and day out. Um, and so I would assume the forensic work is a smaller part, portion, part of what you do. It is. I, From a time perspective, I'm in clinic or doing injections or basically in the realm of treating people, clinical medicine, uh, every Monday through Thursday and every other Friday morning. So I have that, that, that Friday afternoon. And then the other Friday, so I have a day and a half that I, I dedicate to doing this type of stuff every two weeks, uh, every now and then I might work someone in at the end of a clinic day. If there's, if there's a time uh, crunch that somebody needs a report by, uh, but yes, the vast majority of the time I spend in the medical realm is in clinical medicine, treating people, uh, diagnosing people rather than in, in the forensic realm. And I, I think that in all honesty, even though I, I really enjoy the forensic stuff, I, I couldn't imagine ever transitioning to not doing clinical medicine because I, I think doing that, you, you stay abreast of treatment options. I think you're more in tune with what people are doing now, you know, even to treat other conditions. I I'm far enough removed now from training, unfortunately, that uh, I'll see people's medicine list when I'm treating them like, hey, what's this medicine for? They're like, oh, that's a new diabetic medicine. Oh, OK. All right. Great. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm anyway, I, I appreciate doing the clinical medicine. I think it, it keeps me on my toes doing the forensic stuff. And, you know, honestly, vice versa, I think doing the forensic stuff has made me a better clinician as well. Because you'll read other people's IMEs, defense IMEs, you'll read other people's PPI ratings and things of that nature, and even, even their evaluation management of some people. And, you know, sometimes I'll be like, oh, yeah, you know, that medicine, might, you know, they're using it off label for this. Uh, I might might try that. That's That sounds reasonable. And so I think that even doing the forensic stuff has enhanced my clinical practice as well. The um, And I think, you know, one last point uh, with the forensic is that um, and maybe you can deal. All doctors don't want to testify. Not, I mean, doctors go to medical school not to be hassled by lawyers, uh, not to have to testify, not to have to do reports. That's not necessarily. Not, I mean, there are some who like the forensic part, like yourself, but the majority of doctors, that's not why they became doctors. And so they really dislike um, working with the lawyers and doing reports. Doing and then doing when you ask them to do a deposition, that's even harder to get them to do. And then if you want them to actually testify at trial, that's nearly impossible for a lot of practicing doctors. Yeah, it is tough. You know, first of all, there's the logistics of whenever you go to be deposed or you go to trial, particularly if the trial's a, a destination somewhere you got to travel to, you're 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 losing clinic time. I mean, you're you're losing your 
your billable income. You're you're got patients that are going to have to wait. Uh, they can't get in as soon. So there's that inconvenience. And then you're absolutely right. I think it, this isn't something at all that you're exposed to during certainly during medical school. And I wasn't exposed to it all during my residency. Uh, I'm not aware of anybody else, uh, any other fields where they would have been uh, exposed to it to really have a good idea of what it is. And there's always that throughout your entire medical training, there's always that what we call CYA, cover your your, your hiney um, medicine, where you're documenting things just to make sure that you've got it in print so that you can't, somebody can't come back to you down the road and, you know, see you for this, that, or the other thing. So there, there is almost sort of a fostered distrust, I think, of the legal uh, profession in, in throughout medical training. Uh, I think the other problem is, you know, we're trained in medicine. We're, we're trained to diagnose and treat patients. We're not, we're not familiar with all of the different rules and uh, processes involved with, you know, discovery depot versus trial depot versus actual trial and um, what's admissible, what's not admissible. Uh, that, that's nothing that we're given any training on. So it's, you kind of learn on the fly and some docs have no desire to, I, I think even there's a control issue. I mean, as a, as a doctor, you're, I mean, you're calling the shots, you know, Hey, this is what we got. This is what we're doing. This is how we're doing it. But when you step into this realm, you're kind of in somebody else's, you're the visitor, you're, you're on somebody else's home court uh, from being, you know, in a conference room, doing a depot to being in, 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 uh, uh, with, with a, a trial being in the courtroom uh, you're, you, you're kind of a fish out of water. And I think there's a lot of docs that they're comfortable enough doing the stuff that they do, that they have no desire to branch out coupled with this sort of fostered distrust of the, of the legal, uh, process that is, I think, um, present in, in formal medical training. And if you can get by some of those things, I mean, to a degree, some of it, I, I enjoy doing it. And some of it, I would even characterize as being fun. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what that says about me, but <laughs> well, I but think that, that that's important. I mean, because I mean, like they say, the greatest one of the greatest fears in life is speaking, public speaking. Well, I mean, just so you be, become a doctor, you're a lot more one on one. It's a whole different th- sitting in a courtroom where you're testifying in front of six people, an audience, a judge, the lawyers. Um, so you can be a great doctor, but not be somebody who has any desire to get in front of people and talk. Um, and so I think that that's, you know, my dad was a psychologist. Um, so oftentimes he would get, when he was still alive, he, he was a great psychologist. He helped a lot of people, but at the same time, he really disliked being involved and having to be deposed and, and show up at a courtroom where he had to talk in front of a bunch of people. Um, so where he has a son. Uh, who likes to talk in front of people? So, <laughs> completely different skill set. <laughs> so one other thing that you do is um, you do life care plans or uh, physician life care plans to help. Because again, uh, when you walk into a courtroom, you have one shot, and you don't get to go back and say, right. "Oh, my client didn't get better," or "My client needs future care." Um, and so you have to do that all at the trial, and then you have to get enough money to compensate your client so that they're taken care of for the rest of their lives. And so one of the things that has to be determined is does somebody need future medical care? And if so, what is the cost involved with that? So talk a little bit about that, that role you play. Sure. So, um, 
you know, when you do in forensic medicine, when you do say an independent medical exam, frequently you're, you're making a case in your report to explain causation. These injuries are caused by this. And this is the reasons I feel blah, 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 blah. Um, with a life care plan, the main purpose is to get that dollar amount. And so you identify what are the, the conditions that, that resulted from said injury, uh, what treatment will they need, what duration, what frequency, uh, at what time in their life. Uh, and you project their future medical needs and, and as causally related to their injuries and then assign that um, a dollar value based upon uh, you know current day prices. And um, you have to do, you have to get, I mean, because not everybody who does, like, if we ask a doctor to do that, not every doctor is qualified or capable of doing that. So how is it that, how do you go about determining future medical expenses for somebody's lifetime? Sure. So uh, I I became certified. I'm a certified life care planner. There are certifications. I don't, I actually don't think you have to have a certification to do life care planning. Um, I think one of the reasons that a lot of physicians got into this realm is that historically, very few physicians were physician life were, were life care planners. That field was dominated by um, social workers and uh, sometimes therapists, um, vocational rehab personnel, and in that scenario, those those individuals have neither the legal or professional capacity to recommend treatment. So their entire life care plan is dependent upon what treating physicians tell them that person is going to need indefinitely. And exactly to your point earlier, treating docs don't want to talk to a life care planner and say, hey, yeah, you know, I need this, this, and this, and this. And in our, in our, in our documentation day to day, when I see somebody in clinic and follow up, it's not part of my regular documentation to say, hey, Susie's going to need X, Y, and Z for the rest of her life. So it's difficult to even extrapolate that from the medical records and then even extrapolate that from, um, from a conversation with a treating provider, because most of the time you're not going to get phone time or, or FaceTime with a treating provider to talk about the case. Uh, and, and I get that. So um, anyway, Part of the, 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 I think some of the shift in idea of doing life care planning and having physicians do it is if things aren't uh, specified specifically in the records or in a treating docs depot or wherever else, you, you, are, you have the education and training and certification to recommend treatment. Uh, you have the legal capacity because you're a licensed physician practicing stuff. So your, your opinions as far as future medical recommendations are, are, Every bit as valid as, as, say, a treating physician's recommendations, particularly if you've examined the patient and done a face to face. Um, so anyway, that's that's of, I think, particular benefit. And uh, most physicians probably don't even know what the field of life care planning is, to be honest with you. I didn't know until I don't know, I think it was 2016 and I was at a again, I was at a conference and they had a table and. I was already doing some IMEs by then. And, and so I started talking to them, what is life care planning? And they said, do you do IMEs? And I said, yeah. And they said, well, it's along the same lines. And, and they explained it. And so I started dabbling a little bit and then pursued certification and, and began doing those. But when you, you know, it's very, very specific, very, 
you have to put, like I said, specific frequencies. You know, they will need this medicine, 30 of them a month uh, indefinitely for the rest of their lifetime or, you know, stopping at age 65. And uh, then you cost source everything that you believe is a future medical uh, recommendation. So sometimes you'll query, you'll physically call um, uh, pharmacies in, in that individual's geographic region to find out what the cost of, of this is going to be. And you usually get three and average them together. Uh, there's, there's a database where they um, collect um, actual billing um, statements from insurance companies and uh, break it all down into geographic regions and different percentiles. So the commonly used numbers, the UCR 80, uh, usual customary and reasonable rate, that 80, and the 80 means 80%, uh, the, 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 the cost of this item, whatever it is, um, 80% of the people or of the facilities in this geographic region um, are at this dollar amount or lower. So, you know, it's a standard to use the UCR 80, eliminate some of the outliers who charge drastically more. And I mean, it's, I think that database has been around since the nineties. So they have an enormous volume of data uh, through actual billing claims uh, to produce their data. So you, you would look up the corresponding code for whatever medical procedure um, or uh, evaluation and management services. And and you can, can get that UCR 80 data. um, You know, if you subscribe to the, database. So doctor, I, I appreciate you, you taking the time to be with us. Uh, is there anything else you think that the average person who's been in, you know, them or a loved one been in a catastrophic wreck has, has suffered injuries, uh, anything they else should know about uh, physical medicine, rehabilitation practice, uh, the forensic work, anything else that you think that uh, we should talk about? Well, f- from a physiatry standpoint, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I joke in my local community where I'm at because we, we talked before about referral sources and frequently, you know, somebody goes into their, their family doc and they said, my hip hurts. So they knee jerk, send them to ortho. Ortho takes a hip x-ray. You don't need a replacement. Sorry. So then they come to my way and they say, and, I'm, and I ask, what are you here for? My hip hurts. And I say to them, can you point to me where, where you hurt? And they point to their butt and they say, my hip. And I say, Okay, that's probably not your hip. That's probably something more spinal related. So let's investigate that. And then we talk more and, and everything else. So I, I feel like I should be the gatekeeper for all <laughs> physiatrists should be the gatekeeper initially for all musculoskeletal care, unless obviously there's there's a fracture, or there's some gross, you know, neurologic impairment. Somebody can't move their leg or they can't hold their bowels or bladder together. Um, you know, I think we should be be first line uh in, in clinical medicine and I mean, even in the forensic realm, I think I think that helps because, as I alluded to before, typically our documentation might be a little bit more thorough, which I think is pretty important in the early stages um, following a wreck or a other personal injury, is that the earlier you have documentation outlining the, you know, the issues that, that, that are being discussed and what the treatment is, I think that only benefits that injured party because uh, you can say, hey, look, you know, two weeks after the wreck, they were still complaining of X, Y, and Z. Whereas sometimes, and this happens, unfortunately, and I get it, especially younger people, 
you know, they're relatively invincible and they've never had an ache or pain that's lasted more than a few days or maybe a week or two in their life. And it's not uncommon for somebody to just avoid getting healthcare for like six months because they think sooner or later it's going to go away. I don't want to pay for it. Um, I don't want to take medicines. What I can still do my job, whatever it is. And, and so then it's really hard when the first when the first amount of or the first detailed uh, treatment is six months after a wreck. Uh, boy, it's it's tough. I mean, it, it, it's tough then to say sort out, hey, this is or this isn't. So I think more timely evaluation if there are problems is is helpful. And and I think sort of the nature of a physiatry evaluation is is even more helpful. And, and I would encourage people if you have that, if you're if you're injured or someone a loved one's injured and they're not getting better. Uh, I think people are afraid to go get a second opinion. And I think a physiatrist is a perfect person to go get a second opinion. If you're not getting better with an orthopedic surgeon, or you're not getting the answers, or they're not spending the time with you, which you alluded to earlier, a lot of times the way they work is they're just not set up to spend time with people. And if that's not happening, and, and, and family the practitioners are awesome, but they're not geared at necessarily fixing your problem. Uh, and so, um, And so I think just for those people out there, if you're having issues, ongoing pain, symptoms, your life is altered, and you're not able to do the things you used to do, just ask your family doctor to get you a referral to a physiatrist uh, because a physiatrist can then spend the time with you and help you figure out where should you go, what should you do. And most of the time, you're talking conservative treatment where you're not talking about operating, and that's what people, they don't want to be operated unless they have to be. Right. I completely agree. Well, again, I appreciate you being on the podcast. This is After the Crash, and we've been visiting today with Dr. Uh, Edward uh, Negovetich. Thank you. Thanks a lot. This is David Craig, and you've been listening to After the Crash. If you'd like more information about me or my law firm, please go to our website, ckflaw.com. Or if you'd like to talk to me, you can call 1-800-ASK-DAVID. If you would like a guide on what to do after a truck wreck, then pick up my book, Semi-Truck Wreck, a guide for victims and their families. This is available on Amazon, or you can download it for free on our website, ckflaw.com.